0: Hey, Scuttlebutt listeners! Uh, thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate your support, your participation in this show, and these conversations we're having. Um, really excited today to be welcoming to the show, or back to the show, rather, uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Kelly, sir. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time this morning to uh, be with us.
1: My my pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: If this is um this is really exciting. So this is your second time on the show. Um, for those who are uh, long-term listener, long-time listeners, you will remember uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kelly from his interview. We talked about his first book, uh, "Hell on the Streets of Huseiba, which was just masterfully done, um, taking uh, basically the firsthand accounts of those Marines who were in Husseba. Um And for those who, uh, for those history buffs out there, and maybe for those who don't know. Um, Part of Lieutenant Colonel Kelly's book chronicles the actions of uh, Corporal, Corporal Dunham, who received the uh, Medal of Honor for uh, his valor um, there in Huseba. But um, this current book and the reason why you're on the show is called First Fights in Fallujah, Marines During Operation Vigilant Resolve in Iraq in April 2004. Um, sir, so th- again just really wonderfully crafted. And I, I definitely want to uh, talk about some of your thoughts going into the book, how it had links to the your previous book. But I think one of the things for our listeners who maybe didn't catch you the first time, if you could just sort of give, bring us up to speed on sort of who you are, uh, well, not necessarily who you are, but um, you know what it was that you did or what it is that you do for the Marine Corps That sort of ties in all these books and how are you able to get all these first-hand accounts?
1: Uh, Great, Vic. Well, I uh, my last four years in the reserves, uh, ninety-five to ninety-nine, I was with the History Museums Division, which at that time was at uh, Washington, D.C. It's uh, since moved to Quantico, and uh, retired in uh, nineteen ninety-nine. Did some active duty in San Diego the next summer, and then then I was on my way to look forward to my reserve retirement. 2003, I met up with uh, History Museums Division Marine Corps birthday dinner, and my old uh, OIC, Colonel Nick Reynolds, uh, we had a conversation, and I reminded him that until I was collecting a pension, I was still able to go back on active duty, and he laughed, uh, said, yeah, we'll call you if we need you, and the next month he called me, because um, 2003, the uh, 10 or 12 field historians at the, the division had all been activated, for the initial invasion of Iraq, and they uh, could not be extended on active duty any longer. So uh, I was in a position. Uh, he asked me if I considered doing it, going going over there to Iraq in 2004. Now at the time, things were quiet uh, when he when he told me this, and uh, when when I had the conversations with my wife. But it's uh, pretty much like what I I found in the book and in, in my research. Uh, I was a Marine. I was trained to do something. The last four years of my my service and uh never actually got to do it in a real situation. Uh and here's an opportunity to actually go into an area uh and meet with Marines and interview Marines and do the field history. Um one of the misunderstandings with field history uh, even for active duty Marines is they think that we're going to write history. Uh field historians are just there to record uh what Marines are telling them. Uh we're not there to do unit histories, we're not there to uh do anything like that. It's just to get these uh feelings down and then have it on file so that future historians can use it uh so that was that was the background of what i did the opportunity that i had uh, and then over the years uh, after my uh return to civilian life after my six months on active duty uh, i be- began going through the interviews myself and going over my notes and going over my field history journals and started to put it together in some kind of a form and um that led to the first book. And then in organizing that, I looked at, Oh, here's another way to organize things. But that's kind of the background of the uh, field history and what I was doing at the time.
0: And, And a little bit of history of your own. Um, you, uh, started off in service during the Vietnam war, correct?
1: Right. Yeah. I, I found it interesting because when I, uh, uh, when I was back on active duty in 2006 and I had these, uh, a Vietnamese Service Medal ribbon, uh, yeah. and people looking at me, and I can remember when I was a lieutenant looking at guys who had the Korean War ribbons, uh, yeah. thinking how old they were. And so I said, "Well, I'm I'm that guy of that now I'm that, that that old guy that was from the prehistoric war." Um, again, I I was off the coast of Vietnam. I never went in country, but uh, from being off the coast on an amphibious readiness group, um, we were awarded the uh, Vietnamese Service Medal, Vietnamese Service Ribbon.
0: Yeah, that is so fascinating. It's so cool. Uh, I could probably spend the entire interview just talking about (laughs) the dynamics there. But um, So uh, if I understand the chronology correctly, um, this book is actually your first um, time uh, in the role of collecting and collating this history, correct? Whereas Husseba, those accounts came after your time in Fallujah, is that correct?
1: Uh, right, yeah Husseba uh, the, the way things evolved over there I was based out of Camp Fallujah, and then it was up to me and uh, M- major John Piedmont, the other field historian, to get to different units and to interview as many Marines as we could um yeah the the Huseiba interviews I did them in I guess it was June and July of two thousand and four uh the Fallujah ones were mostly in April, May, and June, so um uh, it was easier to get a, a short book out first. Uh, and then once I got published, the publisher decided with, with me that th- there were more stories to tell. And that's why this Fallujah book has a lot more. But, yeah, the it's kind of a backward chronology. The Husebio story is actually about events that took place after Fallujah. Yeah. Or, I'm sorry. They took place around the same time. But I met the Marines well after I met the Marines from Fallujah.
0: Right, 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 and so in in this book, then when uh, as you started off, um, you go into a little more detail on sort of uh, your your journey, if you will, to Camp Fallujah. Um, can you talk right. a little bit about that and and sort of that sort of eye opening experience?
1: Yeah, we, uh, because we weren't deploying as a big unit, it was, uh, myself and, and, and uh, well, actually at that time, it was just myself traveling with a few other Marines from Quantico, um, commercial flight into Kuwait, uh, waiting for, uh, the, the flight from Kuwait into, uh, Baghdad in Baghdad, waiting for a, a helicopter flight into Camp Fallujah, And that was in April of 2004 when things were really blowing up. So, uh, the year before that, people had been able to get in a couple of Humvees and travel where they needed to travel. Uh, by the time I got there, it was um, you traveled at night, you traveled by Hilo, and you had to wait until you could get that, that connection to go there. So it took probably about a week from the time I left the States till I actually got my feet on the ground in Camp Fallujah.
0: Yeah, and, and, and you know, hearing your accounts and, and sort of how you recalled sort of maneuvering the battle space, uh, really reminded me a lot of my time of, you know, this hurry up and wait, like don't unpack, don't get too comfortable. Um, and then especially the type of uh, transportation, um, you know, it, it's hooker by crook, right? Like you're taking helos, fixed wings, uh, you know, ground transfer, like whatever, basically, because you're not necessarily slated on the. um, Yeah. So you're you're kind of space A around the battlefield. <laughs>
1: pretty much, pretty much. That's true. Yes.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I've spent uh, even even as a you you know part of a unit that's supposed to go. You spend a lot of time in those things, just waiting for something to show up, and and hopefully you don't get bumped.
1: <laughs> yeah, and even once I got there, and I started discovering how to get to places and contact people I'd contact the unit I'd contact the EXO or the opso and I'm co- I'm gonna try to get there next week and I'd show up at a place and then who are you well <laughs> I'm the guy that contacted you and you, you said you have guys with for me oh well, they're all out today they're're they're, they're not in so I'd you know cool my heels for a while until people were available uh so and then sometimes I get to a place and they have 10 guys sitting in a room waiting for me to interview um yeah more than I can yeah. handle at any one time so yeah it yeah. was. Uh, Flexible at all times.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Semper Gumby, right? Semper
1: Gumby, that, that's true, yes.
0: <laughs> um, so, yeah, so talking about this book, First Fights in Fallujah, um, I'm s- sort of noticing a bit of a theme, at least with these two books, um, and which makes me wonder what it was about these accounts and, and this uh, action in particular that made you want to uh, to have it published. Um when we talked about Hell on the Streets of Huseiba, uh, you expressed part of your impetus behind that book, and, and you know, other than sort of the the ease of getting a shorter narrative out, was is that Huseiba in a lot of ways had gotten overshadowed by the events of Fallujah. Um right. and you wanted to ensure that that this that those the actions of those Marines, the heroism. The uh, camaraderie, the that warrior ethos uh, that was exhibited there wasn't sort of lost to history uh, just because right. of its proximity and time. Here, I think in this book, we see a very similar thing, whereas everyone remembers um, uh, Phantom Fury. Uh, but right. Vigilant Resolve sort of, in a lot of ways, was the, I don't know, the battle that you know, for the Marines there, obviously, it was the battle that should have been completed, but wasn't. Uh, but for right. those who uh, only either vaguely remembered or only reading it through these books, it was kind of the battle that we lost. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of your impetus behind uh, putting this book out?
1: Yeah, well, the uh, the Marines that I talked to and the, the Marines that I met and the things that I read while I was there, I mean, they all felt they were within Days or weeks of just taking over the over the town. Uh, there was so much. Uh, I guess it was the uh, information operations of the uh, enemy uh, that were so masterful uh, with the, the uh, foreign press. Uh, I mean, every time we'd read something, it would be about women and children being killed. Yeah. Um, When I talked to these Marines, they were not coming across women and children in these buildings. Um, uh, but they realized that okay, there's a political situation. We have to follow what they tell us to do. Uh, there was frustration but there was an understanding even at the the Lance Corporal level they thought we went in there we kicked ass um, we did our job Uh, now our job is to stand back and let these Iraqis try to take over and and settle things so there was frustration but a a maturity that surprised me especially among the younger marines about what was happening and the sacrifices that they had made and uh, Mm -hmm. when I left in August uh, they were they were hopeful that things would would improve now they didn't and then when the Marines went in the second time, there was no no second guessing, no thoughts. It was just uh, in November uh, they were going to do do what had to be done. Um, but yeah, the the, the early fighting um, is kind of overshadowed. In fact, books I read about Fallujah uh, <clears throat> all talk about the the November fight uh, and not a whole lot about the April fight. Uh, again, it, the April fight had gone on for another week or two. <laughs> there wouldn't have been in November. Yeah. Um,
0: the yeah. time I knew that. Um. Yeah, I had um, I after the invasion, I had um, you know made some drug deals to stay with third tracks to participate <laughs> in the invasion, and that sentiment was very much the same when I left. You know, was like, "Hey, mission accomplished, right?" Like President Bush on the aircraft carrier. You know, well, here we are. Um, you know, we're 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 the guys with the combat action ribbons and. You know, I go. I, you know, because of my drug deal, I go off on recruiting duty. Uh, everything, like you said, the press is just all over the. You know, the brutality of everything that's going on. Uh, I get back to the fleet in 2006, and you know, their first first tour Marines with you know racks three high, and I'm sitting there, you know, with a nam and a combat action ribbon. Um, <laughs> And but yeah, very much talking to those Marines who were there, going back again. It was very much that sentiment that like we were on the cusp, like like you said, like you could quite right. literally see the finish line, and then we were told to stop. Um, right. And sort of the political climate at the time, I guess, is somewhat even analogous today, where. Hey, this thing happened. the 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 black water uh, contractors were you know brutally murdered, um, uh, dis- out for display. We have to respond, and then it's like, oh shit, your response is pretty gnarly. And it's like, <laughs> what, I mean, what did you think was going to happen? I, I, um, and then, like you said, that the the information campaign um, from uh, Al Qaeda in Iraq was was really way was a generation ahead of where we were um right. in controlling that narrative and, and they definitely won that aspect of you know the 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 pillars of warfare and, and right. so but um so did you find then um uh, because you'd said you know the, the 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 bookshelves if that even is a thing anymore uh were really just full of stories and narratives, um, of Marines in the November fight, right. uh, but did you find then when you were submitting this book that there were, there were some pushback on like, well, why would we want to chronicle the accounts of the battle that we lost? Or even, I didn't even know there was a Fallujah one, uh, you know, how, how, what was the reception like when you, when you were pitching this, this idea?
1: Well, probably four or five, uh, publishers. I just got the letter back that said, uh, we're not interested in this at, at this time. Uh, finally, I did get the, the one publisher who, um, actually turned out to be the agent and a publisher in the United Kingdom, um, is the actual publisher of the book. But, um, um, yeah, one of the th- things that I, that, that frustrated me, even in, in books that did mention first Fallujah, like I, I was at a Marine Corps birthday dinner last month and, uh, Colonel Dick Camp was there, and um, I, I, I chatted with him a little bit, and I said, you know, sir, there's a, a story in your book about uh, Iraq, about Fallujah, that's a half a page. And I said, it's, it's two chapters in my book, the same event. And he laughed, and he said, you know, that's how it had to be. I had to summarize everything there. And um, the other frustration in, in reading books, like Dick Camp's book, which was great, uh, is um, interviews were done with the same Marines, some of the same Marines who I met, but it would be a, a phone interview done in 2008, and it, mm. you know, I sent Corporal a week after the event happened, and he was telling it to yeah. me like it was a movie. Um, and I felt there was there wasn't any of that. Any of the interviews that I did, none of them were used. Uh, that was part of my input is to get to, to get the this into print and get it out there. Um, uh, it, there were a couple of, couple of books I've read, and they would through the um, uh, the official report or the the commendation report that would be quoted in the book and you know it's written in a certain type of language it's, it's not a corporal saying holy shit we just got overrun and the stuff was happening and it's you know a great risk to his own life corporal jones that made this decision that's the legalese the, the interviews that i did was these are the words of the guys it's they're not being uh refashioned for an award it's yeah. their actual feelings right it's actually what happened it might take four pages in the book to tell this story that he's telling me. And for an after-action report, it's got to be summarized in a couple of paragraphs in, a, in sure. a certain format. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I thought it was really, uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was some of the, the anecdotal, which you're not going to mm-hmm. get years later over a very sterile sort of like, why well, tell me what happened. Um, there, right. this is very raw. These are very raw accounts. And I, I like, for example, the, um, i uh, I'm drawing a blank on on which marine it was that you'd interviewed, but he had was was known for saying like mortars don't strike the same place twice right, right. Uh-huh. and then he gets hit <laughs> on the roof twice, and then his his account is, well, it must have been a rocket then because this mortars <laughs> still don't hit you know like <laughs> marines are never wrong, man we are never wrong right, right. um <laughs> or the um the tanker. Uh, who had said, hey, there's something else going on here other than this jihadist zeal, uh, because there was an insurgent who was firing an AK at this main battle tank, and they had literally pointed their main gun at him,
1: and he just kept Uh going. Uh
0: Um, It's like, (laughs) these guys must be on drugs, because that was insane. Um, Right. Yeah, you're not going to see that in an after-action report. So, yeah, this is... um, it's it definitely resonates. Uh, I think even beyond, um, you know, for those who are there, because especially as we're talking and especially looking back now on the long war, as we're you know I guess official like officially unofficially not doing uh, these type of combat operations, um, there is this tendency to sort of in our collective consciousness to just merge everything all together. Like, right. oh, I was in Fallujah. Like, great. And then everyone thinks of, you know, whatever it is they think of as Fallujah. But there's no there's no longer that um, individual is, I guess individual is the right word, but that idea that these things happened to Marines, sometimes multiple times, but this time happened at this time, you know, this thing happened at this time. And that's important that we don't lose the context. true. <laughs> yes.
1: <Yeah. laughs> um, well, well, uh, oh, go ahead, please. You're saying, you know, the, the books that tell the big story, they have to tell the big story. Uh, my two books don't tell the big story. They tell the individual stories. And uh, one of the things that even even when I was putting it together and then revising it, I I, I thought this this is giving me a, a picture that I didn't see at the time. You know, I was so close to it that I didn't see some of these things until I stepped back years later and saw the connection between a lot of these different stories. I mean, oftentimes I'd be just taking notes, doing a story, and not not really listening because I was busy um, recording everything and, and being careful that I didn't miss anything that he said. Really later, list, look, look, reading through my notes, reading through my journals, and then listening to the uh, Marines and then summarizing what they said, that's where I, I was able to form a better picture. And then organizing that into a book and deciding, which, which Marines I would include in the book. For instance, there's a, a, a Marine gunnery sergeant with the Amtrak uh, company. Um, great interview, but it wasn't a combat interview. So
0: that mm. I thought, okay,
1: I'm gonna leave out for the general reader. Now to a Marine, that might mean a whole lot. Like, wow, how did this gunny handle operating this company out here in the middle of nowhere, keeping the vehicles up, getting parts in, things like that. But for uh, the average reader, and even for a lot of Marine readers, um, they want to see the, the nuts and bolts of the, the front end of the, of the combat. Uh, same thing with uh, aviation There were a couple of aviation interviews I did <clears throat> that were really, you know, down to the nuts and bolts of keeping the, the hel- helicopters up in the air and repairing them and everything. But um, they weren't involved in combat actions. So some of them I just, you know, made a decision to leave them out. Um, so that was the, what led to the, the 50 or so interviews that I did include in the book. Um, and even then there are a couple of stories that were <laughs> the guys just didn't talk a whole lot. Uh, yeah. you know, and okay. It, it's a page. This guy's important. He's a, he's a corporal squad leader, but, um, and he was involved in some stuff, but he doesn't, uh, doesn't talk a whole lot about it. And it was he wasn't holding anything back. He's not a very vocal person. And other interviews, I, I'd be there for some interviews with an hour and a half. I just sat there listening and taking notes. <sighs> um, yeah, yeah. Trying to absorb it all. And I didn't stop them. I, I asked very few questions. In fact. Uh, Later on, when I was listening to the interviews, I thought, you know, I should have asked them this. I should have asked them that. But um, I felt just by letting them go, um, uh, sometimes you'd get some real nuggets of information from them. And that was true in so many cases.
0: Yeah, we had talked about this a little bit in um, when we were talking about hell in the streets of Huseva. I always find it really fascinating because especially, you know, unless you're like giving, you know, feeding Marines, the, the liquid truth, ser- you know, the truth serum, <laughs> um, <laughs> that a lot of times you just sort of get the, uh, I, you know, I just did my job. Um, uh-huh. yeah, you know, but mm-hmm. let me tell you about this other guy or, uh, you know, Oh yeah, it was gnarly. And that, you know, that that's the extent of it. So I always found it really fascinating, um, how, in sort of, sort of a short time, um, mm-hmm. You know, you get like you said. Sometimes you would show up to a location, and there'd be ten Marines sitting in a room. Yeah, uh-huh. a lot of them, you know, probably eighty percent of them are sitting there shitting their pants. Like, oh my God, am I under investigation? <laughs> but that was the thing that I would have to break through at the
1: beginning. Say, look, I'm a high school history teacher. Uh, I'm a reservist. I just want to hear your story. This is not an investigation. Um, uh, you know, tell me what you can tell me. Um, and at the higher levels, like a company and battalion, it was. I don't. What, I can't handle anything uh, classified because um, that was a, that would have been a whole other issue trying to transport that stuff around. If I had sure. got anything classified, even photographs that I talked about, if I was in the Italian headquarters or regimental headquarters, uh, I didn't take any pictures of anything. Even though yeah. it would be interesting to put into a book, I wasn't thinking of a book at the time. But you know, I don't want to get involved in that um, uh, that whole situation. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it was breaking through the, uh, this is not an investigation. This is just, we're recording this. Uh, a couple of times in the Husaba book, I mentioned it where uh, Marines would say, ask me, sir, what's going to happen with this interview? And, <laughs> you know, I feel the, the, basically it's going to be in storage someday in the future. Some historian might come across it and, and use it. That's what it's for. Um, and um, again, part of me writing the book is nobody came across these interviews and nobody used them. So I thought, well, I'm going to use them.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. And so that leads me into one of my questions. I don't think we touched on this with your previous book, but um, one of the things I really enjoy about reading these narratives is that you start off with uh, a a brief history of the Marine and their background, how they came to, you know, be in the unit, how they came to be in the Marine Corps. Um, Is that a stand, is that sort of SOP within history division, or is that just something you were doing to sort of um, help you know, lower some of those defenses and, and break some of that stuff down? Yeah, it
1: was more of the latter. It was more of, uh, just tell me a little bit about yourself, why you entered the Marines, uh, what, what were you expecting? Um, um, we, we were required to get the background on the Marines, but by starting the interview that way, that kind of opened the Marine up more, I thought. Um uh, you know the motivations for joining and the, what they expected to do, and uh, maybe some events at boot camp. and then uh, some of them were on previous deployments. a lot there were a number of Marines who had been in in the in initial invasion in two thousand and three. In fact, uh, one of the corporals he said who was interesting, they when they went into uh, Iraq in two thousand and four, they said it was the same day. It was the same hour that they crossed the border from Fallujah or from um, Kuwait into Iraq. Although the year earlier there was, there were bombs falling and helicopters flying in the air and jets flying overhead, but they they pointed out how ironic it was that they were back in the same, on the same roads in the same places a year later. Um, and then, some of them wanted to talk about their experiences the year before, and I let let them go, um, you know, give them a whole different perspective. And then, then it would get into the current events. And uh, you know, I would never say, "Do you have anything really exciting to tell me?" It would just tell me yeah. what happened. What did you yeah. do, and and kind of let them lead lead the path? I, I think if I'd asked the the, the hard hitting type questions at the beginning, I wouldn't have gotten the responses that I got. Um,
0: you know, there'd be yeah, it, it probably would have come off like you were doing an investigation, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Or or I'm, I'm I'm doing a you know a combat report or writing up a, a accommodation for a medal or something like that, and they're oh, right. I know how that has to sound so my mind were no these these are not that at all this is just tell me what happened
0: well i think it was uh, it's an interesting choice and one that ne- didn't necessarily come through to me um until i saw again uh, the style choice again in this book was is that how much of um sort of it really speaks to the humanity of the marines uh, that these aren't you know we aren't the, they aren't just uh, these robots, you know, break glassing time of war, um, that these are real people uh, with real issues that come from all, of, you know, just a whole menagerie of, of backgrounds and upbringings and experiences that led them to this thing. And so I thought it really, um, it added a lot of, uh, I guess, texture, uh, mm-hmm. but also a lot of humanity to what's going on.
1: Yeah, there was one corporal, I can't think of his name, but he was talking about they're, they're clearing rooms in this apartment building and they're they're getting grenades thrown at them and they're shooting at people. And then he kicks open a door and there's a couple of women and a little girl the same age as his little girl um, there that he didn't yeah. shoot at. He, and he, and how that affected him afterwards. He said, you know, there was, there's was this little girl, the same as my little girl, made me think about my little girl. And uh, yeah, you're right about the humanity that, you know, Five minutes ago, they were shooting at somebody who was shooting at them in the same building. And um, they didn't know what was behind that door when they kicked it open. Um, and yet they had enough uh, presence of mind to stop what they were doing and realize, okay, these are innocent civilians that we're, uh, we're faced with right now. And all we have to do now is calm them down and then go about our business in the, in the same building.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, the, the, those sorts of decisions. And I have always, Said that, you know, from my time um, in, like, I've never been more impressed with the emerging generation of Americans Mm -hmm. uh, than when I saw these Marines doing the things that they did at a level that, like, it's just, it's literally mind blowing. I guess not literally mind blowing, but quite literally. uh, It's mind blowing to just think about all of the things that they've had to navigate through and the decisions they've had to make, like, Within split seconds, and just the level of um just depth and and how dynamic each of these marines were. I'm just uh, it almost brings me to tears when I think about like just how amazing they are at at their age, you know i I, I joke, but it's it's real. like when I was their age, the hardest decision I had <laughs> to make was, do I go to class or do I keep drinking? <laughs> um and <laughs> You know, so I've I've just never been more impressed, and I, I I it definitely comes through on the page here in in your book. So I, I really appreciate that.
1: Um, well, I uh, I gave a a short talk. It was a parade a year after I got back. They asked me to be in a parade in the the town where I was teaching, and uh, they asked me to give a few remarks at this memorial service. And uh, I, I probably offended a few of the old guys there. No, I'm an old guy now, but I mean old like Korea War vet guys and a few. Uh, World War II vet guys because this is 17 years ago and I said people talk about the greatest generation in World War II I said I saw the greatest generation and there the, the Marines are in Iraq right now and, and same as you I was just totally impressed by um, the maturity of these these young men and um, uh, what they were doing um, and sometimes people have said to me, well, how come there's no women in the book and my answer is there weren't any women in the infantry back in 2004 right. I interviewed the people who I've met with. Now, I did interview some female Marines and aviation units and some female uh, corpsmen um, and um, some some uh, other people that were uh, uh, motor transport uh, people, but the, the, the operators out in the field, those are the guys, those are the men. Uh, yeah. Even uh, when I, I met with General Mattis at one point, he didn't want to be interviewed, but he did meet with me. Uh, we found out we had been at the basic school around the same time, <laughs> and, um, yeah, he, you know, he stayed in and became a general, I, I maxed out at Lieutenant Colonel, but, um, um, it's, uh, it kind of alluded to the fact that sometimes when he was giving his reports about combat casualties, uh, somebody somewhere was urging him to say the men and women who have been killed in combat. And he basically said that there haven't been any women killed in combat at that time. Right. Since then there were some, but he was said, no, these were the casualties this month were you know, whatever the number was of Marines, and they were all male. Um, I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but that was my, my know, it's, story.
0: Yeah. It's a thing. It, it, again, I think this is where we conflate uh, these battles and why it's so important that we're chronicling them within the context that they happened, mm-hmm. because there. I think if my understanding is correct, they, they did have FET, they did have the female engagement teams in the November fight. Um, right, but, but they not, did not. not no. Right, and so it's important that no. we are we're understanding that these things happen when they happen, uh, in the context in which they were happening. Um, well, to just shift gears really quick, uh, to make a uh, shameless plug for my Amtrak brethren, completely on unabi- uh, <laughs> un- a completely unbiased opinion here, of course, but the fact that Chapter Two is titled "Marine Tankers and Trackers." I was like, uh-huh. oh finally. <laughs> we, um, but yeah, we talked a little bit uh in the pre-show um how really rewarding it was for me personally to read because I'm as I'm looking through the names, I'm like, oh, Ben Venning, like very close friend of mine. Oh, okay, uh-huh. Sergeant Alcatar, who was like one of my crew chiefs when I had um Second Platoon Alpha Company. Like it was so great. Um, and it was really I don't know if cathartic is the word, but it was re- it really helped me see more about them uh, because, as our listeners know, uh, who wear the uniform or have worn, a lot of times you you make these really great relationships, these really deep bonds, but then we PCS, we go off, right. we deploy, we do these things, and then you only sort of hear through second and third person. Um, contacts about how, you know, or maybe you run into someone in the PX eight years later uh, and you're <laughs> like, I, I really got to go, man. But like, I really want to hang out too. Um, and you never really get to see or hear about their experiences only, you know, tangentially through other relationships. And, you know, um, Alcantara in particular, you know, I, you know, he was, uh, he ended up going on recruiting duty, doing great things. Uh-huh. Um, and I'd known that he'd gotten, um wounded Mm -hmm. in Fallujah, but to hear his account of what had actually happened, you know, it's something that I probably wouldn't have gotten because it wouldn't have been in official capacity. I would have gotten the, well, if you give me another beer, maybe I'll tell you, I bring him a beer and he says, yeah, it sucked, you know? Um, (laughs) And so I feel like I got to see an aspect of him uh, that I I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And so I I really did appreciate that. Um, But it also was great to, See, and maybe we could talk a little bit about how those stories, because as you're collecting those stories, then you go off and talk to, you know, a CAT team leader who was in the same vicinity or the QRF uh, OIC who responded to some of this stuff. And like, can we talk about how, as you're going through these things, you started to see that um, there were all of, it's it's like what you thought you were gonna be looking at a window now becomes a prism of yeah. all of these different things.
1: Yeah, it was uh, the, the um the stories kind of a lot of them fall together and uh, I've given talks at libraries local libraries and things like that and sometimes people say well didn't they know the guy in the in the tank didn't they know the guy in the vehicle and I'd say no the the Amtrak shows up one day and the driver says alright we're we're assigned to you we're taking you here And you get off the Amtrak and then that's it. You'll never see that guy again. You'll never know what actions he he took. Um, And I I felt that was one of the interesting things with putting some of these stories together that you could see how they're all part of the same story, but they don't know each other. Uh, They're not in the same unit or they're attached for a week and then they go somewhere else. Right. Um, Yeah. You
0: know, it's cool. It's almost, um, you know, I I think for uh, those of us who... uh, ingest a ton of popular media. Um, You know, you see a lot of this in like the Guy Ritchie sort of stuff or the Tarantino things. Um, But this is it's a real thing. It's a real aspect of life is that, yeah, for the individual Marine, it was, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of a flash of the pan connection. But there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of inner workings that are going on here. And I think it's really Cool how. And so was that a stylistic choice then, as you were putting these things together? Pretty much, yeah,
1: yeah. it was uh, telling the stories, and then uh, a couple of years ago, I was contacted by somebody at the Marine Corps Gazette about putting together like a narrative of of the events and and I really couldn't do it. I, I thought there's too many things happening at the same time. I don't have the the skills to to put that into it, into one smooth narrative. I have this guy's story and that guy's story and the tanker story and the grunt story and the Amtrakker story. I'm going to let them tell the story. Um, It's too much for me. Uh, Going on a sidetrack. Years ago, when I was working on the the uh, monograph Marines in the Spanish American War, I was researching that tiny little war took place over a couple of months. And even telling the Marine story of it, it was I couldn't do it chronologically. I had to say, okay, I'm talking about what happened in Cuba now. I'm talking about what happened in the Philippines now. I'm talking what happened in Puerto Rico now. Because if I tried to tell it chronologically, you'd lose the thread.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. All
1: right, wait, we're here. Wait, 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 why are we here now? Why are, Why do we go there? But just uh, the same thing with with this. So just let me tell this. let me put the stories of the Marines out there. Um, and as you're reading it, you can put these stories together and realize yeah. the big picture. And, and yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, I, see, I was thinking about that um, the tanker uh, gunnery sergeant who had to, uh, you know, was providing logistic support and things throughout the battle space when he had all of his platoons, uh, or there was a company gunny, and all the platoons all scattered throughout. And, you know, he's literally driving through these things. And you read another story like, hey, didn't that gunny just drive through that guy's AO or you know, his right, battle right. space?
1: Yeah, the uh, like for instance in that one one uh, interview with um, um, Lieutenant Adams, who was the or no I'm sorry the the company commander of the tankers, he said he has 100 marines and he said 60 of them are support marines and he's got platoons all over Iraq
0: some mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. kilometers away and he's got to support all of that and so yeah that company gunny he, he's doing all of this somehow he's supporting guys in in uh, Al assad he's supporting guys in Fallujah he's supporting guys out on the border with Syria they're all his guys yeah and, and you know the, the distances that they had to overcome and keeping those vehicles running, and that was true for any any vehicle. The Amtrak's, the uh, LAVs, uh, they were all over the place. Um, it wasn't a, a linear battlefield by any means.
0: <clears throat> yeah, yeah. We had a. I mean, uh, before we had sort of inundated ourselves with MRAPS <laughs> and and all of these, uh, you know, more survivable vehicles. It was amazing. Sort of the. You know, it's, it's similar by hook or by crook. You know, all of these, a lot of these, especially the mechanized units would have to transport there in a wheeled vehicle, right? Maybe operate for a week or two, and then get your actual <laughs> TO weapon. Uh-huh. Um, so very well, cool. The
1: tankers weren't weren't even expected to be in their tanks when they went over there. They were they were trained as um, as infantry, and they were going to be uh, convoy security. And then about mm-hmm. two weeks after mm-hmm. they got to Volodya, like, oh, here's your tanks go be tankers <laughs> yeah it's like and they did, really
0: are you serious
1: yeah yeah, yeah. well what about you know, another,
0: um what oh go ahead sorry sorry
1: i'm just gonna say another interesting thing i might have mentioned this in our first interview is when i i've given talks to people and I've, I've shown some of the pictures of the of the marines that i met and people would say you know they're so young they're so young and I, yeah they're 18 19 years old they're guys he's a squad leader yeah, <laughs> he's in charge of 10 or 12 Marines and um, sergeant, he might be 20 or 21, um, because I think regular civilians have this view that, oh, yeah, Clint Eastwood was the gunnery sergeant in Heartbreak Ridge. <laughs> yeah. Clint Eastwood was like 20 years too old to be that gunnery sergeant. You know, he was in his 50s. Gunnery sergeant would be 35. Yeah. Uh, the lieutenant's going to be 23. Captain's going to be 26 or 27 or major. <laughs> people don't realize how young these people are and the the, the decisions they make and the maturity that, that they have um, to do these things. And w- another thing I talk about sometimes when I give my talks is, you know, some of these guys do their four years and they get out. They'll never have this kind of responsibility again. Um, and I don't call it post-traumatic stress, but it's post-traumatic adjustment where, you know, when you're a corporal and you're in charge of a squad, every day, every decision you make is important. You get out after four years you're 22 years old and you're just a guy working at a job and you're just doing everyday normal things and you, you don't have that responsibility. You don't have that worry, but it's still like, it, it has to be a letdown, especially for the younger guys that, you know, they, they were living on the edge and they were making these decisions and you know, being up hours at night, making, making up a um, um, preparation for an op order uh, or, or a, or a patrol order. And then, then that's gone. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't always see it so much as, Oh, these guys are reacting to being in combat. It was, they're reacting to not being in combat. Um life is just life
0: now. Um Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's very it's 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 almost intoxicating um uh, in hindsight. At the time, you know, you're so in 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 the in the trenches quite literally for some um that you don't really see it, but yeah, when because it's a, and we've talked about this on another podcast of, of dealing with, you know, mental health and stuff, but it's that sense of purpose I mean, Mm -hmm. it is it's 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 palatable um, when you're in country, because like you said, like everything hangs on, you know, the decision that I make, whether it's uh, in preparation for a patrol order or Mm -hmm. your, you know, um, actions during that patrol. And then even, Mm -hmm. you know, how you how you bed down and how you allow the Marines to to rest and recover. Uh, knowing that they're going to be going out again probably in the next four four to six hours so Mm -hmm. um yeah well on that note then like what are some of the stories then that stand out to you You know we've we've mentioned a few uh Mm -hmm. but you know you mean because you really do span the gamut um on who you were talking to with this from your you know pfc's all the way up to a brigadier general um right which ones stand out mostly most to you well
1: one th- at the beginning of the book, it's uh, Lieutenant Benjamin Adams, who uh, was a tank platoon commander, and he's the guy that almost blew up the Marines in the in the building in uh, in Fallujah. Um, two years ago, I was reading Marine Corps Times online, and I was reading about the last Marine tank battalion that was being um, disbanded, and I looked at the name, and it was Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin Adams, and I thought, "Wow, that that's got to be the same guy." So I, um, oh no. <laughs> okay. I got gotcha. you. Uh, almost lost the network there. Um, you still there? Yeah, still here, sir. Okay. Um, I, uh, I I printed out his interview, the interview that, that I did with him and sent it to him. And uh, about a week later, I got an email from him and he thanked me for the interview. And he said he was every everything had been closed. And the books that were closed. He was on his way to the Army War College <clears throat> for his professional education. Uh, he's got to the gate of uh, 29 Palms. And at the gate, the guard said, sir, there's a, uh, a pa- an email or there's a package for you back at, uh, at, at base postal. So he turned around, went back and picked up. It was the package that I had sent about 20 oh. pages of the interview. Yeah. And, um, he, he was so glad to get that, um, to see that the, the story was being told. And I said, you know, I'm working on getting a book published right now. And, um, uh, hopefully he's, he's got a hold of the book. Um, no, another story from the, the first book I may have mentioned this is, uh, uh, shortly after it came out, I got a, a message from a marine who was interviewed. It was a, a one and a half page interview, it, not not very detailed, but the interview said simply, "Sir, thank you for telling my story." <laughs> and that's that's kind of my goal here. Um, some other stories: the uh, the uh, couple of the helicopter uh, people that I met with. Uh, one was with a, a Captain Meyer who had been in. Um, uh, involved in the initial invasion 2003, in 2003, in, in his interview he said, "I never thought I'd be back here again, flying missions like this again." And um, he described how uh, his uh, his uh, <coughs> his Cobra helicopter, uh, the rotor blade was hit by an RPG round. Um, and people said, "An RPG round in a helicopter?" I said, "Yeah, one of the techniques that the insurgents were using. They uh, aircraft would come over, they just fire a bunch of RPGs at it, mm. and maybe get lucky." And with him, uh, the, the rotor hit the RPG round, broke the round in half, uh, exploded above the helicopter, but didn't disable it. But he was able to get it back to Camp Fallujah. And um, he got back in. He got back to, um, I guess it was Camp Alticadum. Uh And when as soon as he got back in, they said, well, we got, we're down a, a co-pilot. We might have another mission for you. That night. Uh, <laughs> he said the mission was canceled, but it was that kind of a thing where you're up there, you're getting shot at. You almost crash, and a couple hours later, they're telling you to get ready to go up into do another, uh, go back into the, into the fight again. Um, yeah. Another another interesting helicopter story was the, uh, I guess, it was a staff sergeant was talking about. They were flying over a a convoy, and they didn't get the radio frequencies right. The convoy didn't have the radio frequencies, so the helicopters could not talk to the convoy commander. <clears throat> and this uh, staff sergeant got a piece of cardboard from an ORE, wrote down the the um, um, the radio uh, frequency, put it into a empty water bottle, dropped it out of his helicopter in front of the convoy. The convoy stopped, looked at the water bottle, and then then they were able to communicate with him. Because, um, you know, he's going to tell them, hey, up ahead there's something bad, or uh, this area is clear. Um, <coughs> just, you know, some stories like that, just the unexpected things with, uh, with that. And the, the infantry stories are just amazing. Um, you know, the more I, I sat there and... and listen to them. The, uh, the one was the, um, uh, forget his name now, but he was on the cover of time magazine. It was a, a corporal from, or Lance corporal from, uh, Bravo one five and doing the interview, um, listen to his, his stories. And, uh, then at the end of the interview, uh, this was in a little camp called camp shahabi at the end of the warehouse where we were, there was these three or four explosions <coughs> I looked at him and said, what's going on? He just looked at me and said, sir, you better put your flak and helmet on. (laughs) That's, that's, that's mortar fire. And he, he, it was like another, it was a day at the office. It was, you know, maybe a hundred feet from where I was sitting. These mortar rounds were hitting right outside the warehouse. Uh, and he said, we have guys out in town right now. They're probably chasing after those guys who shot the mortars. there were situations like that where it's just, okay, it's another day at the office and I'm, I'm falling out of my, my pants. Just, uh, you know, we were 100 feet away from getting hit by mortars. Um, uh, and then a couple of the uh, the Marines it was a sergeant and a corporal who were in the uh, the Amtrak's uh, that were in that big incident that day in, in the middle of April in Fallujah, uh, just their their operations. And, uh, and one more story it was the uh, I forget who it was, but it was a corporal I call it the uh, ice cream cones in the attack. <coughs> they were uh, again, Bravo Company 1 5, they were um on a mission in, in in the middle of april in fallujah uh, and they broke into the warehouse and it turned out it was an ice cream factory uh and the uh the, the guys inside once they figured out that these were just regular civilians they offered them ice cream and they didn't want to take anything but the corpsman they said yeah it's good so they started eating the ice cream cones and then firefight started taking place out of the warehouse and they go running out of the warehouse with the ice cream cones in their mouths. Because he said, we're not going to let go of that ice cream. We haven't eaten since yesterday. <laughs> I said, this would be a great movie, having the you know, Marines running down the street with ice cream cones sticking out of their mouths. Yeah, some of the stories are funny like that. And then some of them were just, you know, cedar of your pants, holy crap, this this guy survived this. Um, yeah, just, just so many stories. And I'm glad that the publisher decided to put it out there. Uh, <clears throat> the book is on sale at the uh, National Museum of the Marine Corps. It's online also. <clears throat> with amazon so uh i'm hoping that by things like this more people hear about it and you know the people who know people in that book will say hey there's a book out and you're in it Um, yeah and your picture's in it too um that was another thing with some of the big big picture books tells the big story but you never see what who anybody looks what anybody looks like
0: no that's a great point yeah that's right you get a bunch of charts you get a bunch of sort of uh you know group photos like hey here and it, and it's usually the higher ups right like oh here's oh, yeah. uh-huh. colonel so and so briefing his marines that, are that, here's
1: that, yeah that one to 1 million map of fallujah or that's up of all of iraq behind the uh, the colonel or the general yeah <clears throat> not the guy on the ground here no so another thing thing for, for me was once i got uh was able to get some charts and maps done it actually made it clear to me what the guys were talking about when they were, when I was interviewing them, because I didn't have maps when I was there and you know, there were maps in, in rooms and stuff, but um, once I got a, uh, a couple of maps and had somebody make up the maps for me for the book, <coughs> it made it much more clear to me who I was talking to and what was going on when they were, when they were doing their thing.
0: Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, sir, um, you're working on a site on a third book. Is that correct?
1: uh i am yes uh this time it's going to highlight the uh, the guys in the uh, labs um and also some of the infantry in ramadi um ramadi again was one of those stories uh a lot was going on in ramadi the provincial capital but it was far away from baghdad and all the civilians were near fallujah the civilian reporters were near fallujah and that's that got all the big big play in april of 2004 but ramadi was going on at the same time Um, a bigger city uh, and just as bloody. Um, So I interviewed a a couple of the three or four companies, infantry companies that were there uh, in the spring and summer of uh, 2004. Um, And one of the stories that's going to be in that book is um, there was I forget the company commander, but when they checked into this outpost at the uh, the eastern edge of Ramadi, the, the outgoing army guy said, hey, make sure on Thursday nights, <coughs> you have your troops inside. And he said, why? I said, well, every Thursday night around 2100, uh, they, they pop some mortar rounds in on us. And this company commander uh, thought, well, that's kind of odd. Every Thursday, like, all right. So the first Thursday, they were, they were there. There were a bunch of mortar rounds hit the camp and that was it. So he looked at it, had his guys go out and do a, um, um, a survey to see where the rounds were coming from. You know, They, they looked at the uh, the path of the explosion. Okay, they're sixty millimeter rounds. Uh, they have to be coming from this area. And the next Thursday, he sent a patrol out, and they they killed the guys that were shooting the mortars at them. And the, from that point on, there were no more mortar shoots on Thursday nights. Uh, you know, it was just kind of a uh, the army had done things one way, and the marines were doing it another way. That's that's one of the stories in, in the second book, uh, or the third book rather. Um, and then you know, again, some of the horrific fighting was going on in Ramadi, which which got worse as the year went on. Sure, and that that story was completely overlooked uh, because of Fallujah.
0: Hmm. Yeah. No. It's um uh, It's really it's, it's fascinating to see you unpack these things, especially yeah. Uh, you know, at-
1: yeah, the LAVs. That was interesting because they were all over the place. They were I uh, interviewed LAV guys at Camp Fallujah who were actually from Camp Lejeune, <laughs> and they were attached to the LAV battalion, but most of the LAV battalion was out. Uh, west of Ramadi and guarding the border areas out there. And uh, some you know pretty interesting stories with those guys too. Um, so that's book number three that's in the works right now. It's roughly roughed out. Uh, let's see what the publisher thinks and more changes that I have to make to it. One thing that I am going to do with it though, is I realized in the first two books, um, a lot of times when I was describing things, I was using Marine talk. Mm. I would say XO, CO, <clears throat> And, uh, then I realized, well, unless I'm quoting somebody, I better use words that people understand non non non-military people. Uh, so in in the third book, I'm revising my narrative to use simple talk. And if it's quoted, then I'll use the XO and and have a parentheses, have an explanation of what the terms mean. (laughs) I just had a a lunch with my brother-in-law this past week and, uh, He uh, has read both books, and uh, he said he appreciated the glossary that I put in the book. Uh, And part of my thought process behind that was going back to my Spanish-American War research. When I was doing it, I kept thinking, I wish somebody had written this down, or I wish somebody had explained this better. So uh, when I was interviewing Marines, and then when I was revising the books, uh, I spent extra time with a glossary because there were terms in 2004 that I didn't know. And I, I, I didn't only been out of the reserves for three or four years at that point. Uh, and there are terms in the book that are from 2004, weapons are, are no longer in use. Um, and in 10 years or 20 years from now, there's going to be terms that nobody, nobody will know. Uh, but the glossary is there to explain all that. And it's a pretty extensive glossary, uh, more so than in a lot of books that I've read about uh, uh, combat in, in Iraq at that time. Um and when I when I wrote the glossary, I tried to make it in civilian talk so that the a non-military person would understand. Um, like, here's one, for instance, SITREP. This isn't the official military description, but I just said situation report of an ongoing action. So a civilian can read that and understand, OK, that's what a SITREP is. Um, you know, a snake. You know, you and I know, OK, that's a that's a cobra. What's a co- it's a cobra helicopter? So in in the glossary I have a snake, and then I have a nickname for a marine cobra helicopter. You know, it's not yeah. official, but everybody calls them the snakes.
0: Sure, and then you know we love to uh, hybrid and bastardize existing acronyms <laughs> and reappropriate right. them. Oh yeah. So even yeah. if you already knew that that acronym existed, it may not mean the same thing that you thought it did when you were using
1: it. Well, like uh, het is one that I came across. Het was Human Exploitation Team. But it's also heavy equipment transporter. Yep. <laughs> so depending on how it's used, then you can figure it out. But you still have to spell that out in the glossary, so that okay, het means this in this case, and it means
0: that in that case. Yeah, yeah. Well, sir, thank you so much for taking the time today. Um, really fascinated with your style choices, um, what you're doing to highlight uh, these battles, and and to bring it, you know, sort of. Making sure these things don't get lost in the public consciousness, um, right? I'm really looking forward to your third installment. So,
1: <laughs> well, I, I'm appreciative of, of meeting with you uh, on these these talks and getting the word out this way too, so um, more more people can read about what our Marines are, have done over there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, I think it's really important that these things are chronicled and, and they're out. So, the book is First Fights in Fallujah. Marines during Operation Vigilant Resolve in Iraq, April 2004. It's out on the shelves now. Um, Lieutenant Colonel David Kelly, USMC (laughs) retired. Sir, thank you so much for being here and um, look forward to our next chat when your next book comes out.
1: (laughs) Thanks so much, Vic. Great talking to you.
0: Great talking to you, sir. Have a good one. Okay, thanks. A common axiom is that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Another axiom is that we sweat in peace so that we don't bleed in war. Here at the Marine Corps Association, we fully understand both. That is why we offer, through our professional development page on our website, a comprehensive catalog of battle studies, tactical and ethical decision games, and war games to ensure that not only do we learn from the past, but we embrace the thoughts and decisions that influence the outcomes of some of the greatest actions of the Marine Corps. We have tools and techniques that will enhance both unit training as well as enable comprehensive self-study. Check out all that the Marine Corps Association has to offer on our website. Go to mca-marines.org forward slash professional-development. That's mca-marines.org forward slash professional-development. And get your reps and sets in. Guttabout is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.